Hello, I'm Senator Paula Simons. Welcome to the second season of Alberta Unbound. In March 2020, right before COVID upended all our certainties, I convened a panel of five very eclectic Albertans to discuss the meaning of Alberta identity. The time seemed right. Alberta political discourse was full of talk of separation. Wexit, Yellow Vesters, the Buffalo Declaration, there were so many people claiming to have a monopoly on what it meant to be a real Albertan. And against that backdrop, I was delighted when political scientist Jared Wesley, Conservative MP Shannon Stubbs, journalist Omar Mawalam, Indigenous academic Diana Steinhauer, and former Alberta Provincial Cabinet Minister Doug Griffiths joined me on stage at the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona before a live audience to debate the meaning of being an Albertan. That lively panel discussion formed the basis of our first Alberta Unbound season. It seems a universe ago. Those days when the standing room only crowd packed the theater and we all adjourned for a finger food buffet afterwards. And in the months between, we faced the challenge and the heartbreak of a full global pandemic and the anger and inspiration of the Black Lives Matter protests across North America and right here at home. And so, as 2021 begins, we're back with another season of Alberta Unbound. No panel this time, no live studio audience. Instead, we're offering up a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews with some remarkable, real Albertans, recorded over Zoom, where we interrogate more deeply the questions of Alberta identity, of Alberta multiculturalism, of systemic racism, and of Alberta's place in Confederation. I hope these conversations will help Albertans to think more deeply about whose province this really is, and how we all find a place here. Just as much, I hope it will help non-Albertans develop a better understanding of the complexities and contradictions of the province I love and am so proud to call home and to represent in the Senate of Canada. In this first episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Alika is an anesthesiologist in Grand Prairie in northwestern Alberta on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. He's also an associate clinical professor of medicine at the University of Alberta, a member of the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada, and a candidate to become the next president of the Canadian Medical Association. Here's our conversation, recorded in December of 2020. And I wondered if I could ask you to start by telling me a little bit of the story of your own family. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like many Albertans, I was born and raised in Saskatchewan, and I... Uh, I remember growing up, we, we always used to joke around that, you know, Saskatchewan had two major exports, wheat and Albertans. And uh, I, I found after I'd finished my professional training, I'd done a five-year fellowship in anesthesia after finishing medical school that uh, both me and my wife decided that we needed a bit of a change. We had kind of our two little ones that uh, were only three and one at the time. And we decided to check out different places in Alberta. Um, we came across this one town called Grand Prairie, which I had actually never heard of before, um, but they were really keen on welcoming me and we thought it was uh, time for a new adventure and nine years later, we'll still here. we're still here. Your family roots in Saskatchewan are Cree and Anishinaabe and Métis and mm -hmm. Polynesian. So mm -hmm. explain this to me. <laughs> how, how, how did the Polynesians get in there? 
Yeah. So the First Nation and Metis, um, I mean, Plains Cree, uh, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe are different names for kind of the same, the same culture. Um, that's on my dad's side. And we have a little bit of French and Irish kind of mixed in there too. Um, but culturally, we're, we're mainly First Nation and Metis. Uh, my mom met my father when he was uh, visiting Saskatoon and she was there for a service mission. And they, they crossed paths and um, my dad obviously followed her down to California, which is where her and her parents had immigrated not too long before. Um, I don't think he told her the truth about Canada, uh, but they obviously, <laughs> they obviously liked each other. And so she decided to take a chance on him and uh, she moved up to Canada and they've been pretty happy ever since. So were they from Hawaii or American Samoa or where were they, where were they from? Yeah, my, my mom's originally from Tonga. Yeah, the island of Tonga, which is which is part of the Polynesian Triangle, which includes a few islands, including things like Hawaii, Tahiti, Fiji, Samoa, uh, and New Zealand. So that is in its way also an Indigenous mm-hmm. uh, identity. Yeah, I, I sometimes joke around that I'm in it, Indigenous four different ways, but it it definitely gives you know a really rich rich culture, and it it lends to understanding a more universal universal experience of being Indigenous. Um, you know, a lot of the same struggles that First Nation and Métis people have gone through here in Canada are the same struggles that, you know, Pacific Islanders have gone through. And so, I mean, I know that there's also a sense of identity across, I mean, the border is an artificial construct, right? Alberta and Saskatchewan are both traditional uh, Cree territory, traditional Dene territory, if you're further north, traditional Blackfoot territory, if you're further south. So, I mean, to you, do you identify yourself now as an Albertan, as a Grand Prairian, or is your identity a little more uh, non, non-traditional in that way? Uh, when we moved to Alberta, I found that there was a lot of similarities with, you know, Saskatchewanians, but uh, Albertans were different um, in the way that um, when, when Albertans go forward with something, they really go all in. You know, that, that's something that's a little bit different than Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan is uh, a more conservative type of exploration. You know, we, we put one foot in the water, but if we feel the cold wind, we kind of step back for a little bit and reevaluate. You know, <laughs> in, in Alberta, I found that uh, there's lots of folks who I've come across who really have this, this strong sense of individualism, exploration. Uh, they want to stretch the limits of themselves. Um, and I found too that, you know, small town Alberta, which I classify Grand Prairie as, is very, very different than small town Saskatchewan. Um, one of the things I noticed is, you know, there's a Walmart and a Costco. I mean, you'd never find a Walmart or Costco in small town Saskatchewan. And I, I think that speaks to just the approach that Albertans take when it comes to laying down roots and development and also expansion. And then, you know, the long history of immigration here in Alberta. So I, I think after almost 10 years here, I really do define myself as an Albertan, um, but I don't forget where I came from either. This is a time with COVID-19 that I think a lot of people are thinking about community and how we define community. And I think COVID has really challenged our sense of community and what we owe to each other. So you are a physician working during a time of pandemic how do you think COVID has tested or changed our sense of community and community responsibility? Mm-hmm. So my, my background in, in medicine is an anesthesiologist. So when, when you come for surgery, I'm the one who puts you off to sleep and make sure you're comfortable until we kind of get through uh, what we got to get through. 
Um, one of the things that's that's become really apparent during this COVID crisis is just how at risk folks like myself are uh, as far as exposure. And as a community, just how much physicians want Albertans to be healthy. You know, um, I would say that we trained for this, but I, I don't think anyone ever imagined that we'd ever be in this position. Yeah. Uh, my heart does go out to our elected officials who, you know, are trying to manage the politics of it. I think the science is clear. Uh, public health impacts are clear, but you have to balance that with people's lives as well. And I, I think we're really struggling right now on how to balance that properly. But that's part of being an Albertan too, you know, like you have very strong willed, high spirited uh, individuals who have an idea about how to go about doing things. And that's been both our strength, but in the midst of this pandemic, it's, it's been a big weakness, you know, yeah. and I, I think the sense of community that, that you talked about um, is something that I'm hearing more and more, not just colleagues within medicine talking about, but also, you know, friends and, and other community members who are from Alberta that, you know, we really have to pull together and maybe it's time for the next short period of, of, you know, the next few months or, or what have you until we can get this vaccine rolled out that, uh, we, we rein in that spirit of uh, exploration and maybe we all just get together and just hunger down and worry about each other for the next little bit. Yeah, because I think, you know, one of the myths we tell ourselves about Albertans is that we're independent, that we're rugged individualists. And I'm afraid rugged individualism doesn't stand you in very good stead during, mm -hmm. during a pandemic. I mean, we, you know, we made a commitment, of, you know, shouldn't say we, there was a commitment made that we would be the freest province. And I'm wondering if you think that that, you know, that myth of rugged individualism has actually hampered our response to COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of my favorite political stories that, that came out from, uh, from Alberta was, you know, when the, when the Reform Party and Preston Manning were, were talking about, you know, Alberta independence, and that one phrase, you know, the West wants in, yeah. uh, came out. And I, I think Albertans, for all of our free spirit and, you know, spirit of exploration and taking risks, what we really want is we want to be part of a community, right? Yeah. Um, I think Alberta separatism and, you know, a lot of the anti-masking, anti-vaxxing um, marching that, that's been going on. I mean, that that to me is a call from people who don't feel included in what's going on. They don't feel like their voices are being heard. Um, I think Alberta still wants what, you know, Preston Manning so eloquently said when he said the West wants in, we want to be a part of the community. We want to be part of the Federation of Canada, but we want to be heard. You know, we want our concerns to be, be weighed. And I, I have found that in a group, uh, Albertans respond a lot different than one-to-one. You know, I, I have close friends who have very, very strong feelings about COVID and, you know, the government response and masking or other things. But, you know, you sit them down one-to-one -one and you have a real conversation where they know that you actually care about where they're coming from and you hear that their job's been impacted and that matters to you. Um, we have a different type of conversation. Now, how do you scale that across Alberta? I think we're going to have to figure out how to do that fairly quickly if we're going to make it through this pandemic. Yeah. I think inclusion is, I mean, it is one of those things that makes people feel valued and heard and feel like they are part of the conversations. I want to talk to you about inclusion mm -hmm. from a different perspective. You were the only Indigenous student in your medical school class. 
I can't imagine how challenging that was. So can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and what do we need to do to make sure that we have more Indigenous physicians? Because I'm sure that's also a problem if if people don't see healthcare providers who look like them, they are a lot less likely to trust the healthcare that they're getting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, that's a really great point and a good question. Um, I think when you're alone going through experiences, um, it's normal to feel isolated, you know, and part of it is that you're all kind of going through the same thing, but people don't have your context and it's tough to explain to someone how it feels to really feel alone when, you know, they're, they're having as much anxiety about the exam as you are. Right. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the big struggles that I had early on in, in my medical career was reconciling, you know, my own feelings of isolation, and anxiety against the general feelings of anxiety and like where I fit along that continuum. Yeah. You know, was it just me? Was it, you know, the, the system was what I had in my head and thought was going on, like really going on. And I think over time, when I look back, there's a lot of validation. I feel that I wasn't, you know, going through something and overreacting to what was, what was happening around me. Um, and I think that's a big struggle for, for folks who are in the midst of, you know, kind of charting their own, their own course all by themselves. Uh, we have many, many Indigenous physicians across the country now. Um, hundreds of them. Uh, I'd say we're, we're over a thousand for sure. And we're probably uh, approaching a couple of thousand because of good work that's been done over the last 20 years. Um, but connecting people and helping them to reset what they've normalized in the past that's actually really abnormal, uh, that takes a lot more and sometimes a different kind of effort than simply bringing up our numbers. You did not have, let it be said, a, a, a typical or easy path to medical school. Just, just as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at your Twitter feed and you shared a story today, a really powerful story about your childhood and the labels and the diagnoses that were put on you as a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the predictions people made about where you would end up. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, about those childhood struggles and, and how they shape, you know, how they shaped your path towards the career you have now. Mm-hmm. So I, I, was, I was very lucky to grow up in a loving family. Um, when I was in grade school, uh, I had reading difficulties and they were significant enough that, you know, the principal of the school invited my parents to come and meet with him just to get an update on how things were going on. And um, I'll share a bit more information than I did on Twitter, but I I had um, been placed in... Uh, extra classes just to kind of help with my speech. And it had happened. Because you, you had a, a speech impediment as well? Yeah, I had a speech impediment as well, as well as a stutter. I couldn't pronounce things properly. And I, I had a big difficulty reading. And um, they, had, they had tried to put me in, um, I guess it would be classified as slow class, uh, retrospectively. And uh, I didn't get recess for quite a few months and all these other things. And then finally, the, the educational... Uh, you know, administrators decided to bring my parents in. And in that meeting, they told them that um, I would likely never graduate high school, that they should kind of prepare for a life where they would always take care of me even as an adult. And my mom is a 
you know, first generation immigrant, my dad coming from, uh, you know, first nation Métis background where he was the first person in his family to get a master's degree. Um, they were absolutely crushed. You know, they, they saw education as, you know, the white Buffalo that we, we talk about where it was a way for us to, to move beyond and, you know, claim a better life for ourselves. And, you know, that, that entire dream that they had for me was completely shattered at that time. My dad took it on as a personal mission to find a way to help me through some sort of uh, educational intervention. My mom pulled me from school along with my two younger siblings and began to homeschool us in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Homeschooling really wasn't a thing. So she was doing something completely different than anyone had ever done before. And years later, you know, my my mom puts me in summer school and uh, a grade 10 class when I was 12. And I ended up really excelling in it. And she ended up telling the school board, well, uh, my son's going to be in grade 10 next year. And of course, by this time, she had worn down the school administrator. So <laughs> they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, well, that's Mrs. LaFontaine for you. And I remember graduating uh, high school and going into, you know, an undergrad degree in, in chemistry. And suddenly I'm labeled as gifted instead of de- developmentally delayed. Wow. So that's, that's from a kid whose parents were told that they would have to support you all your life. And now you're running to be the president of the Canadian Medical Association. <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite eclectic when you look at it. <laughs> now, this has been, I mean, I guess it's my own podcast. I can swear if I want to. It's been a hell of a year. It's been, it's been a very strange year. Um, and when I think back to the summer and I think back to the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States that inspired, uh, I think, some really deep soul searching in Canada about systemic racism. And now, I mean, I'm talking to you in December. I think by the time people hear this, it might be the end of January, beginning of February, by the time we package all these podcasts up and make them all pretty. And I'm wondering if all of that positive and exciting and you know, paradigm-shifting energy that we saw in the summer around addressing systemic racism, if it's going to sustain, if we're going to see long-term results from that kind of epiphany that people had over the summer months. Mm-hmm. So my, my opinion on that comes from having experienced multiple crises in my own, you know, cultural community over and over again. You know, I, I think Black Lives Matter really spoke to a, a breaking point related to things like poverty, discrimination, Uh, maltreatment by police, um, being shut out from certain economic activity, uh, in addition to many, many other things that that came up during those marches. Uh, But those things aren't new, right? Those things have existed for a really long time. And I think what happened over the summer is uh, a constellation of events happened where it broke through the public consciousness And so folks like you and me were now saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, because uh, we maybe were hearing it in a different way, or it was being packaged in 
a way that resonated with us more, but the, the individuals who were going through it, like it never changed. Like this was just ongoing for them. And I think that the challenge that you asked about, about sustaining energy and making sure that stays in the public consciousness uh, really comes down to the human experience of seeing things that are important to others and then slowly working our way back to just what's important about ourselves again. I want to end with one very particular question. When you were still a university student, uh, you were on a TV show where you were named Canada's next great prime minister. (laughs) So while we're waiting for you to become Canada's next great prime minister, I wondered what advice you have for, for our current prime minister. (laughs) Uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll share a quick story. And then I'll, I'll, I'll share the advice. Um, yeah, Cause I mean, I really, you know, if you're going to be Canada's <laughs> next great prime minister, we should. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, the most memorable part of that entire experience was uh, a disagreement that I had with Paul Martin. And that was not something I imagined going into, you know, the finals. And the, the finals were this live show where you had a live studio audience and they represented the uh, distribution of, of, you know, Canadians across the country. And uh, so there were people from Quebec and Alberta and all these other places in between. Um, Mr. Martin was asked me the question uh, related to the Clary Act. uh, If Quebec had voted in a referendum that 51% of the population uh, wanted to secede from from Canada, uh, would I allow it as prime minister? And coming from Saskatchewan and, you know, now being in Alberta, uh, I, of course, said yes, you know. Uh, if, if the majority wants something, you know, it, it is, it is the prairie way to let individuals, uh, kind of do what they want to do. And, and Mr. Martin was not happy with this answer at all. Uh, he got visibly angry, pounded his fist into the table and exclaimed over my dead body, would Quebec ever leave Canada? And I, of course, am standing there panicking now, uh, I didn't imagine I'd get into a fight with, uh, you know, a, a prime minister <laughs> in the middle of this convert competition. And I remembered something that my brother had told me going into the competition. He said, you know, if you get in a fight with any of them, just say something super patriotic. And so I, I thought for a moment, I kind of collected my thoughts and I turned to him and I said, Mr. Martin, if Quebec wants to leave Canada, we shouldn't be thinking of ways to make them stay but why would they want to leave the greatest country in the world? And the crowd erupted. And I'm pretty sure that I I'd locked in the Quebec vote at that point and ended up winning the competition. And, um, you know, that, that experience and the advice that I give the prime minister is that sometimes when you don't have any answers, you just need to really connect with the people around you. You know, and in the midst of, you know, this pandemic and all the other, you know, upheavals that have happened in 2020, uh, I think the only thing that hasn't happened is a zombie apocalypse. I'm still waiting to see whether or not that should occur. Don't, uh, don't, don't, don't bring the evil eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, is that uh, reconnecting with Canadians, in particular those Canadians that, you know, are, are fearful of what's going to take us out to the, the other side of all of this. You know, there, there's a there's a big chunk of Canadians who I think are 
very vaccine hesitant, who are worried about, you know, maybe things are going too fast. You know, connect with those individuals. Um, really hear what they're trying to say. You know, anti-maskers, they're, they're worried about, you know, their, their liberty and their ability to make choice. But really wearing masks is a way for you to make choice. It's a way for you to have freedom. You know, and maybe that's how we need to rethink um, how we're communicating. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I think Justin Trudeau in general has been seen as is, is you know, a great communicator. Um, but we're now in the midst of, you know, a pandemic that's, you know, 10, 11 months in. Uh, people are exhausted. We've heard over and over that, that people are concerned. We're, we're all just tired of what we're being told. We just want it to, all to be over, you know, and... Uh, we need to feel out with each other what, what the new message needs to be. And I, I think that's a big challenge for the, the prime minister right now. And I, I've shown in my own experience with Mr. Martin that, you know, the, the, right, the right connection at the right time can, can yield amazing results. And uh, that, that's an experience that, that I still treasure. Well, I want to thank you very much. I want to wish you uh, safety and good health in your work caring for people uh, uh, and our thoughts to all of your colleagues who are on the front lines of this terrible pandemic and uh, stay safe and stay well. And thank you for talking with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You have a great night. My thanks to Dr. Alika Lafontaine and thank you for listening to the first episode of our second season of Alberta Unbound. If you missed our first season, it's available wherever you found season two, which is these days pretty much anywhere you can find your podcasts. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Ame Charnalia. I'm Paula Simons, independent senator from Alberta, moonlighting as a podcaster. If you've enjoyed this episode of Alberta Unbound, please tell your friends and share us on social media. Even better, get ready to download episode two.